Hello, and welcome to The Plants We Eat, that amazing podcast where you get to hear all about the plants that we use for food. We talk about biology, history, culture, and uh, this week we've got a really special plant, one that has, uh, what, should, what should I say, a lot of different myths and just interesting history mm-hmm. behind it. Passion fruit. The passion, oh, I was going to say passion flower. Well, Passion fruit comes from passion flower. That's true, but passion fruit is what we've been experimenting with this morning. It is. And so y'all know, when we talk about passion fruit, we are actually talking about a tremendous number of different plants. I mean, there's 400 to 500 species of passion flowers, hence passion fruits. There are a few that are most commonly used, and we've actually been tasting them. And, uh, well, let's, let's give them a shot so that we can talk about what they taste like. Now, we're going to start with the one that is most commonly sold in the grocery stores. And I'm not going to say it's super common in the grocery stores, but you buy it in the grocery stores, um, and its <laughs> its name is passion fruit. And, you know, I wouldn't have recognized it in the way you bought it because it's brown when, it, well, in, when in the wild yeah. it's uh, green. <laughs> well, the one that you're used to, different species. That's true. That's It's a, it's a different species. There, like you said, there's over 400 of them, and but there's just a, isn't there just a few sold for fruit? Right. There's, okay. So of the 400 to 500 species, there are about 60 species that are edible. And there are about uh, three or four that are sold to any great degree. We're going to try the passion fruit first that you get at the store, or maybe you stir up passion fruit yogurt in the morning. This would be what that is as well. It's got this really tough uh, outer skin. I first had this actually when I was in Colombia for a while. I was in Bogota, and we actually cut the top out and eat it almost like a soft boiled egg. And when you get in there and taste it, kind of sour, um, I mean, not bad, not quite as sweet as I prefer. It's tart. It's tart. That's a good word for it. It's uh, tart, but I see the potential or taste the potential in it. So having yogurt with passion fruit is a great idea. The passion fruit works really, really well with yogurt because, you know, you got that sourness, that tartness going on in the passion fruit. And adding the, some of the sweetness to the yogurt, I think it works really well. To me, passion fruit, this one that we tried from the store, is a little bit too tart to eat straight for most people is what I think. What are are your thoughts? Yes, for me, the same. I would like to hear from people who have used it differently than just peeling an orange. It's similar to an orange, although it's not as fleshy, but it has the sack, you know, like an orange does. But it has little fisheye-looking pockets of fruit in it. So I was actually talking with uh, our assistant director at the Botanical Gardens, Mm -hmm. Amy Tipton, about this. And um, I'll tell you, she said that I should describe it as little jewels with a tiny seed. And I thought that was really nice, but I have to be honest, it looks like a bunch of little maggots crawling around to me. It looks a bunch of fish eyes. <laughs> a bunch of fish eyes, sure. <laughs> Mike, what was your impression of the uh, of the commercial passion fruit? Yeah, it was sour. Okay. Like straight up. So you wouldn't... I probably wouldn't buy them ever, probably. <laughs> okay, okay. You've bought passion fruit products before, though, like, I don't know, passion fruit yeah. sweets of some sort or another. Yes, yeah, just, just by accident, just because it says passion fruit on it. I was like, oh, just out of curiosity, just bought it. So I brought a drink here... Uh, <laughs> I couldn't resist. It was passion fruit juice with sacks. <laughs> and when they say with sacks, what they actually do is they take the pulpy sacks that I was just talking about that look like either jewels or maggots, depending on the way you're thinking, and they re-add them to the juice, kind of like they do with orange juice and you add a lot of pulp. Yeah, let's taste that and see if, uh, I mean, obviously they add sugar to the juice too. What do you think? It's okay. Yeah, it's not bad. It's got a lot of sugar in it. I got to tell you, I, I wouldn't seek it out. 
It is not bad at all, but drink it if served it would not go out of my way to find it. Will you describe the flower for me? Not until we try the final food. So as I said, there's a number of different passion flowers and passion fruits. Right. The one we just tried, the one you'll get at the store, is actually from South America. Uh, Brazil, Peru, Ecuador, and Colombia are the big producers of our commercial passion fruits. But there are some passion fruits native to the United States which we can get, and one of those is called the Maypop. Maypops are pretty common, and they actually look very much like the passion fruits that you get from South America, except they tend to be green or yellow. And I did bring one today. We happen to be in season where they're ripe, so let's take a taste of that and see what you think of that. Okay. All right, so uh, let me pull one of those little maggots out of there. <laughs> Sweeter? Not tart. Not nearly as tart. They actually remind me a little bit of a Sour Patch Kid, because they've got the sour and the sweet going on. It's a very unique flavor. Uh, similar to, but not the same as, the passion fruit from South America, yes? Mm-hmm. Mike, how did you feel about that one? Same or like it a little bit better? I like that one a whole lot better. It was weird because I saw the two together, the brown one from Brazil and these. So I was thinking, okay, this green version is the young version of mm-hmm. the one from Brazil, but they're totally different from what you said. Yeah, I mean, they're recognizable as being closely related, but the flavor, a little bit like a Granny Smith apple versus a delicious apple. Oh, okay. That's kind of the way that I'd think of it. Cindy, what do you think? It has a mild taste to it that I wouldn't seek it out. I would seek out the other commercial variety first than that one. You'd seek out the commercial variety? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Because it looked right. Yeah, yeah. This, by the way, the one we tried, this Maypop that we tried, and again, Maypop, M-A-Y-P-O-P, is the name for the passion fruit native to the United States. Mm -hmm. This one is a little bit unripe. This one's a bit green. It'll get sweeter as it turns to the yellow. So, Cindy, you're asking me something. You're asking me what I thought of the passion flower? Well, because I'm, as much as I enjoy the fruit, I'm all about growing the flower. I understand. Um, Well, to me, it's just representative of Christ. Right. (laughs) Is that all you're going to (laughs) say? This is what I want to say about that. And I'm going to let you wax poetic. And I can name some of the descriptions here about why the passion flower and passion fruit was actually named for the passion of the Christ. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was because it's, it is such an amazing flower that in the 16th century, when the church came over and saw this flower, they wanted to connect it to the church. And so they saw something that representative of Christ, of Christianity. And I have to be honest, they made so many stretches in terms of making this flower representative of the Christ. It really bothered me. I mean, isn't it enough that there is this flower that a force greater than us produced, God, nature, whatever you want to call it. Can't we just appreciate this flower for how amazing it is? Instead of trying to attach it to this. (laughs) I wanted your description because you describe it so well of the flower itself. I I didn't need to go there. (laughs) I thought it was was important to mention. (laughs) No, it is. But what I was aiming for is that it is a beautiful, unique, nothing like it flower. It is over the top. Any description that I can give verbally pales in comparison to seeing this flower. And it it is so wonderful to examine because it looks avatar-ish. Yes, av- the movie the Avatar. The movie Avatar-ish. And like it would be in the land. What's the land called? Oh, come on. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, so it looks like it belongs there. It's a beautiful flower. I recommend anybody listening that to look it up and examine it. It's pretty easy to grow. We grow it here as an annual unless you're in Florida or close you know, to the panhandle. But uh, You can grow it as a, depending on the species, you can grow it as a perennial here. I know, but it's not very easy. And the vine itself, it doesn't have abundant amount of flowers. No, not really. It just, you know, it'll have a, about five to ten. We have some vines around the 
the botanical gardens mm-hmm. that are five and six years old, and those will produce an abundance right. of, of flowers. Well, most of them aren't as well established as yours. That's true. That's so true. that's why I... And it takes a few years to does. get to that it stage. It takes a few years. But it's unique enough, you know, if you're a plant collector, or even if you're somewhat interested, you know, in plants, it would be something to have. If you're in the southeastern U.S. and you don't have one of these, you owe it to yourself to get one simply because of the beauty of the flowers. They're beautiful, too. Just alone, the crown-looking, you know, a petal that... that yes. They're ring, it's a ring-looking mm-hmm. thing that it kind of uh, is a backdrop to the reproductive parts, and they're unique in how they're, you know, arranged above the petals. It's just mm-hmm. something to—you just need to look it up and see. Yes. There aren't a lot of flowers that I say, you've got to look it up, you've got to look it up, this one. You, you've you got to look it up. So this plant has been tried to be used for a number of different things. It's typically grown out on a grape trellis when you're growing it for production. It is not what we'd call a heavy producer. It doesn't produce like incredible numbers of fruits per unit acre. In some places in the southeastern United States, it actually is considered a weed, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the yellow passion flower. You can look up the yellow passion flower. Very pretty plant, but it's kind of a weed. I actually brought some fruits from the yellow passion flower. These fruits are edible. I ate one yesterday. I'm not going to subject you to it. They're not very good. They're, they're really not. It is, can be used as a dye, and it does stain your hands a really lovely purple, which I could barely get out. My fingernails actually still have some purple stain on them from these things uh, yesterday. What did it taste like? Uh, just yuck. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, you tasted it, and you could tell it wasn't poisonous, and you're also like, but... Yuck. Why would you eat this? It's one of those emergency fruits. They sometimes call them fruits that if you're dying in the woods, yes, eat it. It's got nutrients. It's relatively healthy, but as terms in terms of flavor, just no. You need to know a few things about this plant. First of all, passion flowers, passion fruits in general contain cyanogenic glycosides. You heard the whole cyan- cyanogenic. That means they have cyanide. There is a certain amount of toxic compound in these plants, and it can be toxic to you. It can cause pretty bad effects if you eat it in large enough quantities. Not so much the fruit, but the unripe fruit or the leaves. That said, this plant does have some pretty amazing effects on the mind. Some people will smoke it dried, and if you know exactly what you're doing, it can help to relieve anxiety. It has been shown to help people stop their smoking addictions. Of course, you're smoking you know, <laughs> this, this passion flower leaf. It can also help opioid addiction, so it can help uh, addiction issues. But this is a plant that needs to be treated with kid gloves. And I'm telling you that it's been tried for these things. It has, and it's actually shown some really good results. This is not a plant to go out and start trying it yourself because of the cyanide that is potentially in there. And it's not worth relieving your anxiety if you're dead. Other than that, just a very interesting plant. Definitely enjoyed looking into it. This is a South American crop. It is primarily produced in South America. There are some species in Asia uh, used much less. Well, again, like I was talking about, to grow it, you should have a trellis, like you've already mentioned, because it is a vine. Is it evergreen here in your garden? Uh, no, not really. It dies back. That's what. I, okay. So I didn't know what species you had, but some of them, depending on where you are in the world, mm-hmm. mostly in tropical areas, it could be evergreen. There are species that are invasive, but uh, you will enjoy it anywhere in the United States, as mm-hmm. long or anywhere where there's at least you no know, about three months without frost. You know, you can enjoy this plant. Of course, I'm going to be all about the flower. You're mm. going to be about the fruit. That's right. Do uh, see a picture of it on the internet because 
as you've listened, we were unable to describe it well. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate you bringing in these foods. This was interesting. Oh, was, I've never had fun. the juice before yeah. or, or the different kinds of fruit, but they are uh, very interesting on the inside of the sack. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was good stuff. So, hey, I have something to add today. So, maypop, by the way, is sometimes considered a weed in particular uh -huh. parts of the country. Uh -huh. and, you know, one of the pesticides that we use to control it is something called 2,4-D. As long as that's one of the pesticides used to control it, that's actually one of our oldest pesticides. Actually, herbicides, and an herbicide is a type of pesticide. Pesticide means any pest of the garden. Right. Herbicide means specifically plant. As long as 2,4-D is used to control it, I thought it would be really interesting to talk just a little bit about 2,4-D. Now, whether you guys realize it or not, you have probably been associated with 2,4-D at some time in your life. Sure. We'd be gone. Have you ever walked by a lawn and smelled that pesticide odor, that herbicide? Sure. Oh, you just sprayed to kill weeds? Yes. That's 2,4-D. Yes. So 2,4-D, again, it's an herbicide, and it kills a very specific type of plant, and that is a non-grass. What's a non-grass? Well, there's grass in your lawns, but corn is also a type of grass. Um, rice is a type of grass. Wheat is a type of grass. So the thing about 2,4-D is when it was invented, it was great to spray over the top of corn, for example, because it wouldn't hurt the corn, but it would kill all the weeds around the corn. So it was almost like a miracle herbicide because of its selectivity. You know, it hit certain plants, but not others, which actually both good and bad because 2,4-D was actually developed in the very, very early 1940s. And what was going on in the early 1940s? World War II. 2,4-D was actually a top secret during World War II. And the theory was that we could, if developed properly, 2,4-D or some related compound could be used to knock out the German potato crop or potentially the Japanese rice crop. However, it was not particularly effective against either of those crops, particularly not the rice crop. But it wasn't particularly effective against potatoes either, although it would kill them. So it was never used. It was used during World War II, however, for the English corn crops. And of course, for our corn crops, at least to some extent, helping us in our production, but not killing the production of the Axis. So let me describe briefly how 2,4-D works, just so you know. 2,4-D is a plant hormone. It actually inspires growth. Uh, if you've ever looked in a yard and seen dandelions growing in circles, that's 2,4-D. It causes all these different weeds to grow in circles. The way it kills the plant is by causing the growth points within the plant's stem to actually expand and literally crush vascular tissue. And when it does that, of course, the plant literally grows itself to death. I mean, you want the easy way to describe what this stuff does? It makes plants grow themselves to death. One thing I want people to understand about 2,4-D that people really don't understand, and I think this is extremely important. For, for you and me, 2,4-D is actually a relatively safe compound. I'm not calling it safe, but on the scale of really dangerous pesticides to really safe pesticides, it's more towards the safe side. Don't get me wrong. I don't want you playing in the, you know, 2,4-D spray, but it's relatively on the safe side to us. If you drank some 2,4-D right now, uh, it wouldn't be good for you, but you know what? You'd, you'd pee it out within a day. This is not what happens to dogs. Dogs' kidneys cannot process this compound in the same way. When you let your dog walk in a yard that has 2,4-D sprayed on it, they actually can't cope with it in the same way we do. That 2,4-D will stay in their systems for a long time. It actually has been linked to certain cancers in dogs. Nothing has been proven at this point, but to me, there's sufficient evidence to make me uh, very afraid of allowing my animals to get anywhere close to 2,4-D. 
Also, so often they tell you when the 2,4-D dries, it's not dangerous anymore. That is kind of false. I mean, there's some truth to it, but the thing is 2,4-D has residuals. It's got to be out there in your lawn for a week or two at least. And if it's out there in the lawn and your dog or cat eats some grass, it can get in the systems. 2,4-D does not affect cats to the same extent as, as dogs. This is a fascinating compound. Obviously, it's been very helpful to us here in the United States for years and years. But for your animals, it's definitely one to be wary of. So, yeah, watch out for that. I'm glad you brought that up. You know me. I just love to store useless bits of trivia well, and information. That was useless, though. <laughs> All right. Next time, I'll talk about 2,4-D and clover, and that's even worse. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I've been thinking about what to do next week. I have, I have a neat idea. Well, one word for it is sabra, but another word for it is prickly pear. How does that sound? <laughs> Sounds great. Let's do prickly pear. <laughs> All right. This has been The Plants We Eat. You know, we would actually love for you guys to get in contact with us. We have a brand new email address. It's tpwepodcast at uncc.edu. Again, that's tpwepodcast at uncc.edu. We would love to hear from you, get some more suggestions. Just drop us an email. We'll talk to you soon. We are produced by the UNC Charlotte Botanical Gardens with help from College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and the Isle Group. Talk to you soon.